You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. I'm going to read to you from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, through to 1 Peter 2, verse 3. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For... All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy, and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Paul. And uh, good afternoon, everyone. It is so great to see you. If you haven't met me before, my name is Luke and uh, I'm the lead pastor here, sitting on a hill, Melbourne West. And just congratulations for coming. I was thinking, my gosh, it's a hot afternoon. How many people will come? And lots have. So thank you for coming. Uh, Let's pray that it's a great time together. Well, I've been uh, learning a lot about living in hope lately. Uh, so recently I went on a big book buying spree. I, I love books. I just love reading. Uh, and, and if you think that I'm a nerd, you need to understand that I'm actually far more nerdy than you realise. Uh, that is actually a, such a, a, an odd passion for books. So in particular, I love cricket books and sports books. And so I've got this massive library of, of cricket books. And a couple of months ago, I found this amazing website for secondhand books. Uh, there's some heaps cheaper uh, than most places. And so I put in some orders and for a month I was waiting for them. And recently they started coming in. And every day I look out the window and I see the post box come, the van come past. Is it for me? Is it for me? Yes, it is. Fantastic. And it's just kind of been dripping through the, the last few weeks. And on Friday, the last big package came. And it was just so exciting. And I was thinking about how it's weird when you order things online. Like it's frustrating not being able to get them straight away. You wish you could just walk out the shop with them. But at the same time, it's really exciting in the waiting. You're, you're kind of living in hope and anticipation. 
But at the same time, when you're doing that, it's easy to lose sight of the present. You're so focused on the future that you get impatient. You forget about all the millions of other books that you've got already. So you're forgetting to live in the present. And I was thinking that the Christian life can sometimes be a bit like this. You're kind of living towards the future, waiting and anticipating what is to come. But you also need to learn how to live in the present. And that's really what today's passage is about. It actually begins with a kind of summary of last week's passage. It begins verse 13. Therefore, well, what's the therefore, therefore? Well, it's all about what uh, Peter was talking about last week. And what was that? He was talking about how God's people are elect exiles. We feel like we are exiles uh, because of our allegiance to Christ. God's people often feel like they don't belong in the culture around them. Our beliefs, our way of life has pushed us to the fringe. We don't fit and sometimes people just don't like what we stand for. That's what Peter's audience was experiencing. We read through the book that people were speaking against them as evildoers. They're being maligned and slandered and reviled for their good behaviour. They're trying to do what they believe God has asked them to do, and yet people are they're copying a lot of grief for this. Now, Peter was writing to the churches of Asia Minor in the first century. We think of that today as Turkey. And from what we can tell, there was no physical persecution, but they were experiencing this social uh, opposition, this uh, kind of being pushed out to the edges. As one writer puts it, Christian had become the cultural byword for fool, or if they had such a word, bigot. And if that sounds familiar to us, that's because we hear the same kind of language used in our culture. Uh, I quoted this last week, Stephen McAlpine has written a book called uh, uh, Learning to Be the Bad Guys, and, and he says, only a few generations ago, Christianity was the good guy, the solution to what was bad. Christian morality was assumed and passed mainly unchallenged. Then something happened. Over the course of the 20th century, we became just one of the guys, one option among many, but now the tide has shifted further. Increasingly, Christianity is viewed as the bad guy. Christianity is no longer an option, it's a problem. Uh, And I suggested last week that one of the, the key areas of this is what we say and think about gender and sexuality. God's vision for sex only within marriage and for marriage only to be for a man and a woman and for marriage to be a lifelong commitment is hugely controversial in our culture. And I highlight that because that's really where the rubber hits the road. For a long time, we've kind of been uh, written off as kind of old-fashioned for some of our ideas and our thoughts. Often we're scorned as irrational or naive because we believe that there is this father figure, this God who's made this world and cares about us. That's seen as kind of superstitious and innocent but naive. And we're often labelled hypocrites when we fail to practise what we preach. But on some of these issues around sex and gender, we are not just seen as those things, we are seen as evil, that there's something that we are doing that is actively wrong that we can be dangerous to other people. And so God's people today face the same kinds of trials that the people in Peter's day faced. People sometimes speak against us as evildoers. We can be maligned and slandered and reviled for our beliefs. And like the Christians in the first century, sometimes people feel, Christians feel, like exiles in this culture. And yet, of course, God's people 
both in the first century and the 21st century, are not just exiles. We are, crucially, elect exiles. And that word changes everything. First of all, it shows that God cares about us. We may be rejected by the world, but we are chosen by God, pushed out by others and resented, but welcomed and loved by God. And secondly, that word elect shows us that he is in control. He's not surprised. He's not overwhelmed. He doesn't have to switch to plan B. This is his plan and he will work in and through it to test and refine our faith. And in last week's passage, Peter gave us the kind of basic shape of that plan. There is hope for the future. We have this inheritance waiting for us that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading. And then this future hope gives perspective in the present that God is doing something. And so then we come to verse 13 where Peter says, therefore, in light of all of this stuff, he says, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, To be sober-minded is to be aware and self-controlled. See, a drunk person isn't in their right mind. They don't know what they're doing They're not thinking clearly. And in contrast to that, Peter wants us, wants his readers to be sober, to be alert, to be watchful, to to understand the situation and then to respond to it the right way. Really, I think he's saying, I want to teach you how to uh, live in this present even as you look to the future. Look for the revelation of Jesus Christ, his return, but also prepare yourself for action. And it's really striking in, in, the, in the Greek, that phrase, prepare yourself for action, can also be translated as girding up your loins, the loins of your mind, which is an image from the ancient world. Uh, in, in that time, uh, dudes would wear kind of long robes with a belt around their waist and it was very restrictive. You couldn't really move very easily. And so if they wanted to go somewhere, if they wanted to run or they needed to hurry somewhere, they would kind of hitch up their robes and put it into their belt, tuck it into their belt. They were girding up their loins, it was, it was said. And that's really helpful because that's what Peter wants us to do. He wants us to get ready for action to roll up our sleeves because now it's time to get active. Prepare yourself because we've got something to do. And I'm really struck by these two concepts here. He's saying look to the future and be ready for action in the present. He's bringing those two things together, hope and action. And often we kind of might not realise that those things go together. See, hope is a future word. And action is a very present sort of word. But Peter is saying that these two things come together. See, it's not enough for Christians to just be all about hope. You know, sometimes they say that Christians are so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. You've heard that phrase before. They're so focused on the future that they don't do anything here in the now. But then there's another danger for us in which we can be so focused in the present either because we're kind of lost and fascinated by the world, but also often what happens is Christians get so um, worried by the fact that we are exiles that we're just all about action and our action is kind of panicky. We have to change these laws, we have to do this, we have to change the society, all of these things. And some of that might be legitimate, but what we need to understand is that these two things need to come together. We need to have hope. We also need to be active in the present 
And in today's passage, we see how these things come together. That hope for the future leads to a life of holiness now, a life of reverence now, and a life of love now. First of all, let's think about a life of holiness. Peter begins by calling us to this life. Verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Uh, The word holy has two meanings. The first is the one that we're probably most familiar with. Uh, It's a description of virtue. A holy person is a good person. They try to do the right thing. But the other meaning, probably probably the primary meaning of the word is set apart. A holy thing is something that is special or sacred. It's like your mum's best china or the the front lounge room, whatever it is. It's reserved for special use. And those two things come together. God's people are set apart by God. And because we're set apart, we seek to do the right thing. So uh, because we are holy, we pursue holiness, if that makes sense. And then Peter gives us a whole bunch of reasons why we should do this. First of all, we do it because we are God's children, verse 14. We are children, verse 17. We call on him as father, and so we obey him. Really, he's appealing to familial affection. Uh, When your mum or your dad asks you to do something, you do it because they have asked you to do it. You might not agree with them. You might not like what they've said. You might not uh, understand the logic of it. But unless they're asking you to do something that's obviously wrong, you do it because you're an obedient child. And so in the same way, God is our father and so we should obey him. We obey our earthly parents and so how much more should we obey our heavenly father? So we pursue holiness because we are obedient children. And secondly, we pursue holiness because God is holy. You see, that family relationship hints at another motivation. Uh, In the ancient world, children generally did what their parents did. So if your dad was a carpenter, you would be a carpenter. And so in the same kind of logic, God is holy, and so his children become holy too. And really, this is uh, God's great design for us. See, humanity was made in God's image to be like him. We were made to live with him, for him, and be like him. The only thing that's disrupted that and distorted that is human sin and rebellion. But out of his great wisdom and kindness, God uh, decided that he would uh, make a people for himself that he could set apart who would become like him. Israel was raised up to do this. And now Peter quotes uh, from Leviticus, this, this book that is kind of defining the identity of God's people. And now Peter says, right, that's for you as well. If you're a Christian, if you believe in Jesus, then God wants you to be holy. He's setting you apart to live with him and for him and to become like him. And in fact, in 1 John 3, we're told that when we see him face to face, that task, that project will be completed, will actually be just like him. I want you to see here how Peter is holding this tension of the future and the present, how he's resolving that. See, some people can become so focused on the future that they become disengaged from the present or even blasé. Why does it matter for me to 
pursue holiness because it's all going to be finished off later anyway? Well, we do it because we're God's children and we want to obey him out of love. We do it because we've been chosen by him to be changed by him because we want to imitate our Father in heaven. The Apostle John sums this up. We'll see him face to face and then he says, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. The very hope of the future motivates us to pursue holiness now. And then on the other side, for people who are just desperate to do something, desperate to make an impact right now, see what Peter's suggestion is. What should we do? We should pursue holiness. That's the key thing. So, you know, in a world where we feel like exiles, we might be desperate to turn back the tide. And we've got all of these practical things. We're going to lobby the government. We're going to do this, this and this. And some of those things might be fine, but None of it will work unless we first pursue holiness. See, it doesn't start out there. It starts in here. It doesn't start with the world. It starts with the church of us pursuing holiness. Now, and that doesn't mean that we don't do anything else, but it does give shape to what we do. And I think the shape of that is to show the world that holiness works that God's plan works. You see, deep within the human heart is this sense that we can't trust God's commands. We can't trust God's character. That he's asking us to do things that we don't agree with. That we can't trust that he knows what's best for us or that he has our best interests at heart. You see that in Genesis what does the devil say? Uh, God, he, he can't be trusted. He's just trying to hold you back. He's restrictive. And that is deep within the human heart. We have that fear, that belief that we can't trust God. That's why we continually go against him. And so we need to rewrite that. We need to trust that God's rules are the best thing for us, that they aren't just kind of these objective random things that's out there, that God isn't just doing this experiment to see whether or not we'll obey him. No, they are subjectively good. They're wise, life-giving. And so we have to consider all of the things in our world now. How does God's way, how does God's truth shape them? How do we respond to these things? How do we pursue a way of holiness? We need to trust that God is good. Just to give you an example, I, I knew growing up that I was supposed to uh, save myself for my wife. I understood that and I was committed to try and do that. But it was only when I got married that I truly understood why. Like I was willing to obey the rule, but then I understood the heart behind God's why God had given this to me. When I realised that God wanted to, to protect me, to actually give myself to one person, and also that, that, that God wanted to bless me in that way. That's an example of how we need to understand that God's rules aren't just random, they're wise and they're life-giving. But we need to constantly be reminded of this because we're constantly straying and it's hard for us to be holy. You see, all through the Bible you see that holiness begins with a, a putting away, 
getting rid of something, leaving something behind. So Paul talks in his letters about taking off the old man and putting on the new. In fact, he even says that the old man is dead and that we have a new life. And Peter picks up that theme as well. One chap- uh, chapter 1, verse 3, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. He's saying your old life, that past is gone. You've started again. And that means putting away the old life, 1 Peter 4, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. That's all done. Just get that away. But that can be difficult for us for a bunch of reasons. First of all, once we've developed a habit of something, it's very hard to put that habit away. But even more than that, it's hard because change is noticed by other people and not always welcomed. Uh, someone was telling me during the week that as a teenager, they used to go out drinking and going to clubs with their friends. But, but then God convicted them of this, that this wasn't something that they should be doing. So the next time everyone was going out, she said, oh, look, I, I don't think I can come. I don't think I should. Now, she wasn't demanding anything of them. She wasn't saying that you can't go. She wasn't saying that. She was just saying, look, as a child of God, you know, this is my identity. I, I just don't think I can do that. And one of her friends got really annoyed. Like, oh, are you judging us? Are you better than us? Is that why? And kind of just cut off the friendship. And that often happens when you choose to follow God. Other people might respond badly to that. And Mark Dever writes, Your old friends notice the Christ- the old friends notice the Christian no longer acts the way he or she formerly did. They notice that some of the old habits stop. Nothing makes people feel more uncomfortable than changes like these. You see, Christianity is not fundamentally an argument over doctrine. It is an argument instigated by the way your new life says to your non-Christian friends, there is a different way to live. People do not like that. And so you, the Christian, appear strange. And so I, I find it fascinating that Peter says, you've got to, Go back to God's truth. You know what he says? Prepare your minds for action. He's saying that is where it's, uh, you have to get your thinking right. You have to be clear on what God says and why he says it. You have to truly believe that God's way is the best way. You see, we're being discipled all the time. We're being told how to think, what to think. By Netflix, by social media, by advertising, everything around us. All of these values are coming at us all the time. And as God's people, we need to sift through that to discern what is, matches up with God's values and what, what doesn't. And most of all, we need to find God's wisdom, God's truth. That's what Peter keeps pushing us towards. Verse 23, you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. You see, God's word, when we receive that, it brings life. It gives gives us new life. And then it's like this seed that's growing and developing and coming to fruit. And see how he says it's imperishable. See, all this other wisdom and all these other values out there will change just like that. You've seen it in, in just the past decade, how values change and oscillate and go all over the place. But God's words, God's values never do. His word is imperishable. It's better than Netflix, not just because you have to steal your mum's password. It's because it lasts. It's abiding. 
It lasts forever. So don't be ashamed of it. You see, when people notice the change in us, we have to choose how we're going to respond. We may choose to just conform, to go along with the flow, to compromise our holiness because that's easier, or or even just kind of hide away and not let anyone know that there's a change in us. Sometimes we may resent our difference. Often when I was growing up, my conscience told me I couldn't do certain things, but that didn't mean I didn't want to do them. And I resented the call to holiness. Alternatively, we can be tempted to isolate in our holiness. We don't like the friction of being different. And so we just kind of hide away with people who are exactly the same as us. We, we build a holy huddle because that's safer. It's not as difficult. But I don't think that's how it works. Yes, holiness does mean separateness. We're being set apart, but it's not a physical separation. It's a spiritual one. We are to be different among others. We're called to be light in darkness, to stand out, not stand apart. And ultimately, I think this is a loving holiness because we want to show the goodness and the wisdom of God's ways, even if people might not initially embrace it. So we have been rescued from these other ways and now we need to show people the wisdom of God's way. See how Peter talks about how don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. You've been ransomed from the futile ways. Don't go back to that stuff. Press ahead. Go with God's truth. So I I think we should be public with our holiness, but in a different way. Traditionally, Christians have been public in our holiness by just being really judgy. But I want us to be, have a, a happy holiness, a holiness that celebrates God's life-giving truth. Glenn Harrison, who's written a book called A Better Story, says, just to use an example, I was talking before about our views on sex and gender. He says, it's time to recover our confidence that the Christian vision for sex, marriage and family also conveys social and relational goods that can bring blessing and flourishing to all. He's saying, don't just do this because you have to, but do it because it's the best way to go. We need to share what we have found for the sake of all those lives who have been hollowed out and by the, fruit, the fruitless pursuit of self-fulfillment. We have been given life for the world and we cannot keep it to ourselves. So because of our hope for the future, we are active in the present by pursuing a holy life. And then secondly, we pursue a reverent life. Hope and action, living in the present as we look to the future, means that we live this life that's conscious that God is our judge and our Saviour. Verse 17, if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time, the time of your exile. With fear. Now, now that might be kind of surprising to you, because how does that fit in the Christian life? I mean, the, the good news of the gospel is that we don't need to fear God's judgment. We've sinned, we've fallen short of God's perfect standards, but Jesus has come to give us life and so we don't need to fear God's wrath. In fact, a a mature understanding of grace 
means that we'll have total confidence as we come to God. 1 John 4, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. We don't need to fear God's punishment, so why would we fear? Why would we fear? What is Peter saying here? Well, first of all, I think he's not saying that we need to fear God's wrath. We don't need to fear that we'll lose our salvation, that having once accepted us, he will then reject us and turn, turn his back on us. No. When God forgives us, it's done. It's complete. Forgiveness can't be lost. Forgiveness means that our sins are put away. Psalm 103, our transgressions are is taken away as far as the east is from the west. Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you trust Jesus, you're safe forever. So we don't need to fear God changing his mind. Our future is secure. And yet there is still a sense that God will assess our lives and how we live. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. This is really telling because in his first letter to the Corinthians, uh, Paul confronts some of the people in the church who have strayed from the truth. He says, I, I built I kind of laid this foundation in the gospel. I, I talked only about Jesus and then you've kind of added to that with all this other random stuff that, that's uh, ruined that and God's gonna, got a problem with that. He says uh, that when on the judgment day, 1 Corinthians 3, he says uh, that God's, everyone's work will become manifest. The day will disclose it. It will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. He's saying that, uh, their work, their deeds will be tested by God and that there will be consequences because of that. Verse 14, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So you see that. He's, he's saying that something will happen on the judgment day. Our lives will be assessed. We'll still be saved, but there can be some sense of loss. Now, this is a bit confusing, but what I want you to see is that our life matters. How we live matters. We should live in light of this. We need to live a reverent life. We don't fear God in this kind of terrified, cowering way, but we do humble ourselves before him. Scott McKnight says, this fear is neither dread nor anxiety. Rather, it is the healthy response of a human being before an altogether different kind of being, God himself, and is a sign of spiritual health and gratitude. And as he says, we must not let our familiarity with God degrade his holiness. You know, it's, it's, we have this incredible privilege that we get to approach God as our father, to call him Abba, Father, but don't ever forget that he's also a perfectly holy God. As one writer puts it, the judge is our Father, but our Father is the living God. And I think Peter helps bring all of this together when he talks about the death of Christ. 
Conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of exile, knowing that you were ransomed, bought back from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You see, the cross, Christ's death, shows us both the, the seriousness of sin and the wonder of forgiveness. I mean, sin is so serious that it requires, justice demands, death. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. But God's grace is so extraordinary that he is the one who dies, not us. He gives his life for us. And living in the light of that will help you to approach and to think about sin the right way. See, sometimes when we're tempted to sin or when we're just feeling a bit lazy, it's easy for us to just think, ah, it doesn't really matter. I mean, it's paid for anyway. But when you think of the cross, you can't be lazy about sin because you know that what it costs to forgive. It costs Jesus everything. And then there's other times when you feel your sin and you feel so convicted, you, you kind of you get afraid of God, terrified that he, he might not accept you. And in those moments, God says, Christ's blood, his precious blood is enough for you. I love that song. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. You know, when I sing that song, often I think of myself, wow, it was my sin that held Jesus to the cross. And then there's the next line, his dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Live in the reality of that. Live in light of that. How did Jesus do it? Well, it was his love. And now we see that he invites us to pursue that love ourselves. So we live a life pursuing holiness, a reverent life, and now a life of love. Verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart so many ideas around what love is and it's often a bit formless and nebulous and subjective in our world but here Peter says love is earnest it's sincere it comes from a pure heart just like with Jesus and in fact uh, that word translated earnestly is actually taken it's the same word that you see when Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane praying earnestly to his father and we're told that he was so earnest that his sweat was like drops of blood <laughs> in the same way our love should be earnest it should be a pressing stretching reaching kind of love that is desperate for the best interests of someone else and that means putting away our own selfish interests. Chapter 2, verse 1, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. You see, these things 
problematic for God because they destroy relationships. They, they are about pursuing our own thing rather than the good of others, the good of the community. So malice and envy stand alongside each other. With malice, you want bad things to happen to someone else. With envy, you hate it when something good happens to someone else. To paraphrase Aquinas, malice is joy at another person's disappointments and envy is sorrow at their success. Deceit and hypocrisy and slander are all about how we present ourselves to others, how we, how we make sure that our image looks the best in the group. A hypocrite will make themselves look better than they are. A slanderer will make someone else look worse than they are. But in both situations, there's this willingness, this desire to get ahead by crafting our image the best of everyone else. When you think about those words, I mean, it's really ugly to imagine that God's people could be like that, but clearly we are. I mean, Peter is talking about He's saying this stuff to the church. He's saying, put away that stuff. I can see that you have it. Put it away. And surely we need to be willing to look at ourselves as well. Do we delight in the success of others or do we just envy it? What kind of root within us of of malice is there? It's scary to think how easy it is to to bring down someone else and to elevate ourselves. But it doesn't work for God's people to be like this. This is not his plan for us. He wants us to have a life of love. And see, there's this great tragedy that so so often God's people are not just exiles in the world, in the culture, but they can be exiles in the church itself where people feel ignored, overlooked. They don't feel comfortable to be honest and open and to be vulnerable. They can't work through their things because we have this culture of deceit or hypocrisy. God wants us to be committed to each other. This is a brotherly love. He has died for each one of us who are his people. As obedient children of the Father, we should love our brothers and sisters, even the ones that we don't like, because Jesus has shed his precious blood for them, just as he has for you. And the love of Jesus should inspire and shape us as we do this. You see, we all share in the wonder of his sacrifice and we look forward to the day when we get to see him face to face and thank him for what he has done for us. And while we wait, we seek to show him to each other. Well, I find this picture in 1 Peter just a a vivid and a dramatic one. That both draws us to the future, but prepares us for action in the present. In the light of our future hope, we prepare our minds. We pursue holiness because we are God's children, called to be holy like our Father in heaven, called to show the world that his wisdom is the best wisdom. 
and we live in reverent fear because we recognise that our Father is our judge, but our judge is also our saviour. And then we commit to loving each other, inspired by the example of Christ's love for us. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this letter, which we're already gaining so much from. Lord, um, we thank you for this call both to hope and to action, to live thinking and focused on the future, but also very present in the now. Lord, please help us to pursue holiness. Uh, We want to be a people of action and do stuff. May the first thing we do be to make ourselves beautiful like you. Lord, help us to live in reverence because you are the great God, the impartial judge, and we will all face you one day. We thank you that we will face you. We can face you clothed by what Christ has done. But also, Lord, may we still reverently live with a desire to honour you. And Lord, help us to show the love of Christ to the world and to each other. Thank you, Jesus, that you gave your precious blood for us. Help us to earnestly love each other. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.